Welcome to this episode of Between Ourselves, a podcast that centres the voices of black women speaking on topics pertinent to us. A slight life update, I've moved from London to Amsterdam to pursue a Master's in Critical Studies at the Sandberg Institute. Part of my research is to explore what it is to be a black woman in the Netherlands and the links to the colonial history of the country. This means that the next few episodes will be centred on this topic. Today I've decided to focus the conversation around the theme of activism here. Joining me are four brilliant black women activists. We have Jessica Deerbrow, Simona Zeyfalk, who's joining us via Skype, Amandla Awetu, and Inez van der Scheer. So our listeners can get to know you a little, could we go around and you say your name, how you describe your identity, and what activism you're involved in? Uh, my name is Jessica Deerbrow. I identify as a woman of African descent in a Dutch context. Um, my activism is around the anti-black beat movement that symbolized the second wave, uh, between brackets, the second wave anti-racism movement in the Netherlands. I'm uh, Amandla Awetu. I identify as a woman of African descent or Afri-Caribbean. My activism is uh, yeah, also in the anti-black beat movement and in the um, decolonized university movement. Uh, I'm Ines. I identify as a Caribbean woman and very much as a Latina woman. Uh, my mother is Afro-Latina um, and my father is a white man from Holland. I'm with the University of Color and uh, very concerned in activism with intersectional and decolonial critique and practice. Simone, could you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure, my name is Simone Seyfeld. I identify as a black woman, Afro-Caribbean woman, black woman of African descent, um, and my activism primarily focused on representation, inclusivity, and belonging, and specifically with regards to uh, black people in the Dutch, or at least Western European, white context. Brilliant, thank you. Before we start, I think it's important for us to recognise the space we're recording today's episode in. We're in the Black Archives here in Amsterdam, um, and this is a building that's shared by different community groups as well. So if you can hear any drumming in the background or music, that is what's happening in the background. But Jessica, would you be able to tell us a little about this space? Yes, so we're now located in the Black Archive, which is a historical archive that focuses on black history, black culture, black literature. Um, And more importantly, we are... um, trying to contribute about a lot of silencing of the legacy of colonialism and uh, slavery. The Black Archive is hosted in a very important building, especially to me, because it's the only black building in Amsterdam for a collective purpose. More importantly, it is in history uh, of the building, holds a history of a lot of resistance that is forgotten, the resistance that happened around anti-colonial movements in the, since 1940s, 50s, but also a lot in the 70s and 80s. Um, yeah. Brilliant, thank you. So, my first question is, if or how do you think your identity links to the activism you're involved in? Oh yes, most definitely it links. Um, I um, became active, very active, through seeing how um, the interlocking oppressions affect, you know, affect my life. Yeah, I see myself as politically active, even though I'm not in politics in The Hague, um, but I'm definitely like an outside agitator. 
who strives for change, which is why I think education, particularly higher education, is so important, uh, which is why I, I, I decided to become extra active there. Um, the university educates people who become the leaders of, of big business and, and of the country. And um, that's why I think it's important to be very active um, in the university. Can I, yeah. can I ask for you two, like, you're both part of the University of Color. Mm-hmm. Do you think your, like, family heritage is being, like, from Suriname or mm-hmm. Aruba, like, have an impact on your, um, your motivation to be involved? Yeah, definitely. This university is almost 400 years old. It has buildings that belong to the United East India Company and United West India Company. You see the emblems, you see the uh, men that are celebrated who lived during that time that colonized um, my family um, and many other um, families and enslaved. And the riches are all throughout the city of Amsterdam, the the Netherlands is rich because of um, this history. And to this day, um, black bodies are not respected. When my brother was 13 years old, maybe 12, he was jumped from behind by policemen, beat up to a pole, bag over his head, pushed in a bus, like extremely horrible. And when they did the interview with him, no, they stripped him naked, um, made him um, crunch, and looked into his butt and when they did the interview with him they realized oh we're looking for a grown man and this is a child um, so you know these things happen and and these are the interlocking oppressions that I'm talking about which which is why I'm 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 active and which is why also I chose to be active in education mm-hmm. yeah because I think that's where you can make change and, and um, uh, also look at how can... Um, uh, one of the demands of the University of Color is that the university is not an ivory tower um, um, which big business has access to, mm-hmm. um, but that it is there for the people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the demands that we make of scholars is that they their research has benefit for marginalized communities because they are the upsurface and experts and it's for their career and it helps big business and law and order whatnot but it should help the people um, um, and <laughs> we're at the moment fighting um, like hell to you know make people see that this is so important because this is not the tendency of most uh, academics. It's a very neoliberal university that poops out scholars and students. And Maybe you can speak on yeah, that more. Sure. Would you oh, be able to speak on, so um, the University of Color came up out of um, the University of Amsterdam. Would you be able to speak to like the specifics of that maybe? Sure. We uh, kind of joined the Magdehuis occupation slash liberation during 2015 that was uh, initiated by uh, Humanities Rally and the new university. And at that point, we came there as individuals and then 
uh, yeah, as a bunch of people of color, we found each other and we um, banded together as University of Color because we found that um, the demands of the the other student groups were a little too focused on maintaining the status quo and we experienced the status quo as oppressive and racist and sexist so that we wanted to you know supplement that in the in the message of the protest jessica um do you think your identity links to like your decision to be involved in the anti Pete movement and like even setting up the um, black archives uh, definitely. Um, I think as a young child uh, growing up in the Netherlands, you understand that you're treated differently, but you don't have the language to actually articulate what you're experiencing. And I think through the anti-black beat movement, you know, also I have to say I have the privilege of going to higher education, to university, and then developing that language. Um, but the, when the anti-black beat movement arrives, I feel like I had a responsibility to do something with that information. Um, but also, you know, well, breaking power structure, but most importantly at that time, now I'm about breaking power structure, but when I was younger, it was more about opening up that conversation and actually saying, like, this public space also belongs to me. Um, yeah, so I definitely um, identify. Mm. Yeah. And Simone, um, do you think, like, your family background being from Suriname links to deciding to get involved in the activism you've chosen to be a part of? Uh, not specifically Suriname, just being black in the Netherlands and hearing the normalization of your uh, dehumanization in everything from education to subtitles to even proverbs in the Netherlands. Um, so it's not specifically linked to being Surinamese, but being, um, yeah, being black in the Netherlands. Would that be like quite an overarching thing for all of you? Like, I'm like, oh, your family's from Suriname and Aruba, but it, it sounds to me more like you identify as being black in this space or of colour in this space more than necessarily where your families come from? I, I would say so. Um, because one thing, when you talk about race, often what uh, dominates is the US and the UK. So when it comes to the black European side, it's quite limited. Um, so if you think about that, we are often already invisible in our own uh, nations and nationalities. Um, it tells something about Europe as a global system. Also, what I also always find out is that when you speak about Europe, always people always think about black, white people, and I always say, well, black people live in Europe too. So you know, Black Lives Matters is the same issue in Europe. So uh, yeah, it's about basically highlighting there there is a black European context or. Um, make it more inclusive, more a context for people of African descent in Europe, uh, and more specifically, what does it mean for people, for instance, in the Netherlands or in Belgium or in Germany? Um, yeah, brilliant. But I do think it's important to also note that um, to make the context more plural, so to say, because I think that it's different in the Netherlands than it is in Belgium than it is in Germany. Mm -hmm. But it's also different when you are African, uh, Afro Caribbean, or you are like from the continent, so to say. And I think all of us here today are, um, who are speaking at least, are Afro-Caribbean. But of course you have like a different reality when you are from Ghana, or when you are from, I don't know, Ethiopia, or when you are from Sudan. Um, so I don't think there's at least one black experience in the Netherlands, um, because we also differ from each other in different contexts, of course. Yeah, thank you. 
So what do you all think are the most pressing issues that are facing black women in the Netherlands at the moment? It's a big question. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) To keep it light. (laughs) I think dehumanisation is still very real and um, very high profile in in the way that politics are happening in, in Holland. The way that people treat black women, see black women, talk about them in public discourse, um, and also to varying degrees of uh, severity, mm-hmm. like with respect to what Simona said, that, yeah, um, it's definitely also distinct per, per yeah, per background. Um, but I would, yeah, I would say dehumanization to many varying degrees. And would this be... Um like in the media are there like some specific examples of what may be happening in the Netherlands that people in other countries may not have heard about of um, how black women are treated in this particular context uh, I think a shining example or a very high profile example is the complete uh, abuse of someone like Silvana Simons um, the way that she is treated in the media for example but also spoken in the, sorry go ahead um, would you be able to explain who Silvana sure, is? Sure. Um, uh, a politician. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I would say revolutionary in the sense that she is the first um, to do what she is doing in the Dutch context. Um, explicitly intersectional black woman politician. And she is yeah, being maligned and abused by, the, by Dutch society. And I think that Almost, yeah, every example just is a testament to the dehumanization of black women. I mean, what they say about her, you, you wouldn't say about someone that you respect the humanity of. So that would be a very um, easy example for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else that um, maybe you as black women feel that you experience in your day-to-day mm-hmm. that is particularly pressing in the Netherlands? I want to come back to what Simone says. It's like there's no one black Dutch context or <coughs> one um, black women reality. So I think all of us would have like particular issues that we are dealing with because of our different uh, identities we have. Mm-hmm. So for instance, um, like I said, it's quite privileged to go to higher education. Uh, so I experienced the segregation in, in, in edu- education, mm-hmm. um, but also thinking about um, so in general, you would have women already erased from society, from history, etc. Mm-hmm. The same happened to black women, and same will happen to other identities. Mm-hmm. So you have these different intersections and double and triple and multiple sinuses. Mm-hmm. So I think those were different, but everything that black people experience in all different fields, in all different levels, mm-hmm. um, black women and other other realities. Um, will you know experience differently in in an other intensive way in terms of the activism that you're all involved in what's the relationship like to black men within that sphere tend to be supportive of your causes has there been any frictions simone do you have any perspectives on this (laughs) no Um, (laughs) no a little bit i think um how to say this I think the erasure, that is my biggest problem. Like the erasing of black women and black people who don't identify as cis, cis men. Um, 
who do a lot, a lot, a lot of work and who get erased. Um, and then you have a few people who take the forefront or who are, who are or who get pushed to the forefront. And the story gets kind of like, like we've seen throughout history. Um, you know, a few faces that symbolize a specific movement, or you have a few people who are on every shortlist and who are, who are in every conversation. I think that is my main issue with, uh, with regards to at least activism and our role as uh, black women in, the, in this movement. Uh, the erasure is still very thick, very thick, very present, uh, very frustrating. And it's getting better, but because we put in work, not because it overnight just got better. No, were there examples possibly, I suppose it's always the age old thing, like within black liberation movements, when uh, black feminists want to fight for their particular causes, that's often maybe being seen as divisive to the quote unquote black struggle. Mm. Has Have there been instances of that or it's it's been easier to work through and uh, black men have been supportive of the particularities of black women? So I don't know how it is with the universe of color, but I choose a very, I choose for myself because I know the anti-black people movement is male dominated, mm -hmm. and I chose to stay in there. So I was, I knew what I was dealing with, um, but also, yeah, sometimes I reflect on it, like why did I stay there? Um, and like Simona said, there are some progresses because women like me and so many women are making those changes on the background and making men aware about their power and privilege they they are actually carrying with them. But the reason why I stay there is because I thought by myself, you know, every woman has a different story because there are also a lot of women who take up their circles and say, you know, we're gonna do it ourselves. And I. Like I said, this is just my story. I don't want anybody to take an example of it because I understood what I, what I was dealing with. But I stayed there because I was like, so so what if, if another woman like me sees this and there's no one for her to talk to about it or to pick it up? So I knew that there were women on the backside who were feeling it, but they couldn't articulate what they're dealing with. So I was like, if I leave, who's going to be that fang net? Who's going to... Thing of how you say that catch. catch them safety net, yeah. a safety net so this is the reason why i stayed because i knew there was there was resistance from women but how to articulate it that was the thing mm -hmm. that is what i wanted to contribute by staying in male dominated circles can that be quite isolating or can that feel like quite a responsibility to choose to stay within that space or if you're seeing progress it's been worth it yeah, so I want to take my example as the example. Mm -hmm. So I lived in, I worked in a male-dominated environment for six years. So mm -hmm. I understood already the stuff that I was experiencing, not only as a black person, but as a woman. Mm -hmm. And I took lessons from that. Mm -hmm. um, Half by saying that is that I also had a, a space where I could speak about it and deal with it. And mm -hmm. like I said, I was, I was, well, I'm mentored by black feminists in particular from Germany. Mm -hmm. So that was like, my safe space to speak about it and then come back and you know i was ba basically how you say it opladen charging i was charging my battery outside of the outside of the netherlands in the uk in the us in germany and then coming back here and then fight again mm. and yeah so basically that's it mm. i feel like that kind of links to what i was a question i was going to ask in terms of the approaches you take within your activism to look after yourself so jessica maybe one of those ways is to reach out to other black feminists, maybe in other spaces to help recharge your batteries. Are there other examples of 
what you do to look after yourself. Activism can be really tiring, exhausting, emotionally, spiritually. Like, do you do anything? Could you be doing more? Like, what do you partake in? I could definitely be doing more. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Um, Now, um, it's almost the elections. So, um, there's a lot of work because anti-black racism, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, fascism is very much on the rise. A, a couple of parties are, are really using, you know, and milking the ethno-nationalist narrative, um, and it's horrible. Um, and it's also something that keeps me up at night and worries me a lot. So, yeah, I should definitely do some more self-care. <laughs> but I, 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 um, I mean, like, we were going to have dinner since how many months now, Simona and, <laughs> and yeah. Jesse? Like, That's true. Uh, yeah, we were joking about it today, me and Simona. But, yeah, a lot, a lot is happening now. So, um, yeah, I could definitely do that better. Yeah. How about the rest of you? Same. I think we can all do better in the self-care department, for sure. Because it's so draining. Mm-hmm. And you see it throughout different movements that people um, people sometimes literally don't make it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it takes so much from you. Either with regards to your mental health or just like your existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It takes a lot from you. Mm-hmm. A question to you all. like, Why do you think it is so difficult to take that space for yourself? Is it because the issues are so pressing and there's a real urgency? Like how, yeah, what do you think is a barrier to helping you? I would say because there's always something to do, it's always urgent. And also because you know that there are people working on it, you know? And I feel like it's harder to think about someone that you love and respect putting in that work and then not showing up. Mm-hmm. So that's, um, but that's also energizing them to work with them. So mm-hmm. in, I, yeah, sometimes I feel that activism can be really energizing mm-hmm. and nurturing if you're, um, yeah, more community organizing, for example, mm-hmm. you know, with like yeah. with your own people in, in quotes, yeah. Yeah. that can feel like um, taking space as well or taking time for yourself as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like um, we organized a community pro- uh, project together with th- some other people, a couple of artists, and we painted banners together. That was so, that was so nourishing and wonderful and so much fun too. But you don't always get to do, you know, stuff like that, um, especially in this time. But I hope that we can. Uh, do something like that again soon it's interesting because often we think of activism as the hard being on a protest Mm -hmm. and doing petitions and that that's legitimate activism but i'm always interested in you know spending time with people that care about an issue and i don't know brainstorming ways to work on it or taking creative approaches is also activism as well so in what ways do you see the colonial history of the Netherlands to be present today? Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. They regurgitate 
all the colonial imagery, this thing that they say is uh, we have to get back to the VOC mentality. There is um, a pedestrian tunnel at Central Station now. It's it's hasn't been there that long, but it's like a Delft blue, like a China blue a mosaic with the boats from that era. It's just horrible, and it's it's present in the in the in the stereotypes. For instance, all the things that they're saying about Sofana Simons and other black women, the angry black woman trope, the references to monkeys and bananas and things like that. So two things, like for people that may not be familiar with it, um, moving here, like I've heard a lot about the VOC, so it would be great if you could describe what that is to listeners who may not know, and also kind of a harping back to the golden age of the Netherlands. What would you describe those things as to people that wouldn't know about it? A.K.A. the grim age. (laughs) So what's the VOC, first of all? The VOC is the United East India Company. Mm Mm-hmm. It's um, and you, you also have the United West India Company, mm-hmm. and so basically both companies went around the world. The United um, East India Company went to Asia, yeah. Also made a stop in South Africa, going to Asia, and they were also involved in slave trade, colonizing people, making them do hard labor. They were trading, and I say this in quotation marks spices and those spices were then brought to the Netherlands yeah they were doing police actions which is a euphemism for bloody wars and murdering people that's the United East India Company and United West India Company uh, was involved in the transatlantic slave trade at some point the Dutch had a monopoly on the on the slave trade as well would that sit within this uh, golden age? Grim age, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I would say, sure, the we're just businesses who made money of slavery yeah. and yeah. colonizing yeah. people over the world. Mm. Yeah. Their main thing was to make benef- uh, profit mm. yeah. and on the back of dehumanization of people of color around the world. Yeah, yeah. And do you, it sounds as if within like the public narrative that there's mm-hmm. a kind of sense of, I don't know, the good old days or going back to that. If yes. people are saying we want to go back to the VOC. Yeah. So yeah. would you argue that is there a different perception of that era for white Dutch people? Absolutely, right? It's I think it's the last, uh, it's the time they're proudest of. Yeah. Yeah, that was just... Comes back every political cycle yeah. when around the elections. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But to me, the reason why they're proud of it because they truly saw it as a as a form of entrepreneurship because mm-hmm. they made a lot of money. That's mm-hmm. why it's called the golden age because gold stands for the amount of money that they uh, stole, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> basically. And do you think most white Dutch people know the real horrors of that history, or like, are there white people that have come to this black archives and? found stuff out they haven't been aware of. Ooh, wow. Or is that giving them too much of a get-off? Like, oh, you just didn't know? Well, a lot of people don't know, and a lot of people do know, and don't want to take responsibility about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also choose not to know. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe someone can add to it. No, this is it. They, they choose not to know. They choose 
who they want to feed them the information. Uh, as if we're, as if we need to elevate our, elevate our picture of reality to them. Because um, these conversations, like Jesse has been saying, and as you can see in the in the Black Archives, have been going on for decades and decades. And so for people to say, oh, I didn't know, that's that's too easy. Yeah. For them to say, at least. Mm. Um, yeah, it's lazy. Yeah, I fully agree, especially because the Netherlands is the most connected country or one of the most connected country, if not the most connected countries in the world. Um, people here have like 97% uh, of the population has access to the internet. So if people wanna know, they can know, and there have been like a lot, a lot of projects. So it's, it's not too difficult to to learn about this. I'm always really interested in white discomfort <laughs> and how that blocks a lot of things from being spoken about, acted on. What are your experiences of white discomfort in relation to maybe the areas of activism you've been involved in? Well, we made a mural about it, remember? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, tell me about it. Keep your white tears. What we want is decolonization. Ooh. was on the mural we made that together with Emery Douglas of the Black Panther Party yeah Minister wow. of Culture of the Black Panther Party and how did that come about? well um, we were involved this was after the Magda House um, liberators were evicted mm -hmm. there was talk of um, research commissions that would do research into the finances and the housing of the university and another commission was going to look at democratization and decentralization of the university and we went in and we demanded a third one that would look at decolonization and diversification with also a strong focus on social justice and equality so the protests in 2015 were against the board of managers but in this process of negotiating to make a mandate, all these um, pre-commissions were n negotiating to uh, make a mandate so the research committees could do their work. Mm -hmm. But then you saw how the board operated. So people started, you know, um, changing their position and then later you find out, oh, this one made promotion. Oh, now this person is professor. Oh, this person is dean now. Like, mm -hmm. you know, this stuff kept happening. And one of the things that people were also protesting was the medezeggenschap. Uh, How do you say that? The, 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 the bodies in the university mm -hmm. which give employees and students some representation. representation. Like student councils, workers. Council. Yes, so the Central Students Council and the Central Workers Council. But this wasn't working, so that's why the protests happened. Mm -hmm. And so we also had, um, in the beginning of the process, some trouble with um, the representatives from the Central Students Council and the Central Workers Council. And one time, this woman from the Central Students Council was in tears wanting to leave and one of us said yeah you can leave you can walk away we have to stay here we can't go you know mm -hmm. so this is 
basically the white tears are representative of how we were manipulated like people didn't stop short of you know they they pulled everything out of the closet to get their way even tearing up over nothing like white fragility mm-hmm. extreme white fragility like if i tell you stories you won't even believe it because it's like you know it's so outrageous it's stuff that happened during the negotiation process mm-hmm. so it was really nice to in that period to be able to work with emory douglas and richard bell who invited us to make these murals that emory designed this mural after talking to us about the situation that we were going through. What was the response to the mural that spoke to white tears? Were people upset about it? We, um, people were upset about it before it even existed. I remember (laughs) when we discussed it with Emery Douglas and we were telling him (laughs) our plan, the uh, white people involved in setting this whole situation up were very... I guess not into the idea of the mural or somehow um, it kept being yeah, postponed or forgotten conveniently. Mm-hmm. So even before we, we, we painted it, it was already an issue. And after that, I would say at the big reveal, so the kind of launch party mm-hmm. of the murals, it was like so many people of color there. So I think mm-hmm. that it was just received pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm happy I never got to hear any white person's response, actually, after that. Do you get the sense, I've only been here for a few months, so I can't speak as an expert on this, that there's, like, a particular case of white fragility here? Like, is it a newer encounter, I don't know, having to be forced to engage with these ideas? I don't know, are white people in these spaces particularly... Entitled. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can't even call them white. Mm-hmm. I mean, calling them white is already something, you know, just devastating to them. So, what would that be in Dutch? Like, what would would you use that term? Well, yeah, the term that they uh, identify themselves as is blank, which means blank, which kind of implies the absence of race or just being a default human being, so the standard human. And then there's, you know, black versions, red versions, brown <laughs> versions, I guess. Um, so then, as like a language politics, we make it a point to call them white and to to say wit, which is the literal translation of white, mm-hmm. instead of blank to. Mm-hmm. Um, to make that like whiteness specifically known mm-hmm. to them, and that yeah, that hurts their feelings for sure. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even in interviews, um, they change it to blank mm-hmm. if you save it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that happens sometimes. Is that like I don't know, perceived as an offensive word or just something you don't want to engage with? It's perceived as an offensive word because of the politics behind it. Mm-hmm. It kind of makes me think of like um, Joy DeGroy Leary, who talks about post-traumatic slave syndrome and mm-hmm. the like cognitive dissonance that goes on. So, like, mm-hmm. if you, I don't know, I suppose if you think of yourself as blanc or just without anything, to be to racialize yourself as white means you'd have to recognize that there's a black other that's 
not necessarily being treated as well as you are. Mm-hmm. And I but I don't, I don't think for them it's about racializing yourself. It's mm-hmm. about being racialized by others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And by yeah. the others, you've always deemed to be voiceless, invisible, mm-hmm. yeah. things like this. So you don't even have like the, a normal conversation about race, mm-hmm. let alone a conversation where you cannot choose for yourself mm-hmm. how you are being called. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. in the Netherlands, that is something that white people are, are often um, very proud of. Like, they get to pick the labels. Yeah. Mm. So to then have somebody that you don't even see as fully human tell you who you are mm. is devastating. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, white tears. Yeah. Let's not dedicate too much time to that. Um, I have a question about intergenerational dynamics. Do you, as younger activists, engage with older black activists? And is that um, relationship easeful is there sometimes uh discomfort between the generations where each thinks that there's a a better approach to take yeah i'm intrigued as to what what black intergenerational dynamics are you involved in especially with older black activists here yeah i think we need to have more intergenerational conversations about like uh, what we're facing i think it would be really helpful for us and also really respectful to the people who've done the work before us. Yeah, I would definitely agree. But I also recognize uh, that sometimes we disagree on tactics and uh, that's difficult. Yeah, sometimes that's just really difficult. Mm. Also, to explain to people like where you're coming from or why you see something in a certain way. Yes, it's difficult sometimes. I want to add is that there are, like you would have like an intergenerational uh, conversation with particular members, but some members do not represent like the whole generations. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of members who are very supportive to us. And some, in some conversation, there are, there were some sensitive topics and, you know, developments that I think we still need to speak about. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't take that particular circles or particular organization mm-hmm. particular it will are representative of the whole generation mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah. yeah that's true yeah. yeah and particularly i suppose within black feminism now like how we think of gender in a, a different way to historically has that been a conversation that older black activists have been open to or yeah, I, I i think it depends like on if you're talking to, you know, who you're talking to. Mm-hmm. Some of them are very open mm-hmm. about it. But yeah, it, it, I guess it depends on who you're talking to. I've had positive experiences. But I do have to say it does take a lot of talking to reach the positive. <laughs> a lot of talking. Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would add also that just from my personal experience, that Older people are not um, less likely to get it than young people yeah. that are privileged mm-hmm. by their gender. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that's just my experience. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I agree with that. Yeah. I agree. Does your activism link with other groups in Europe or further afield? I know, Jessica, you were talking about <coughs> Germany. Yeah. In the US and... So like I already said, my activism didn't start in the Netherlands. It actually started in Germany, mm-hmm. where um, 
the, uh, uh, some of the Afro feminism saw a particular leadership in me that I didn't knew about. So therefore, I became within I think two years uh, coordinator of a platform called Empaths, which stands for European Network for People of African Descent, where the aim was to connect different Black movements throughout Europe. So like I said, we are quite invisible in our own nationalities, moreover even for each other, and finding ways <coughs> where there is similarities, but also a lot of differences. Um, so in that sense, we work on a grassroots. So we work on a grassroots level where we connect different demonstration, protests, forms of resistance, but also on a advocacy level. Um, yeah, on an advocacy level that we have particular lobbyists who uh, work on, for instance, reparations or uh, legal frameworks to actually open the agenda. So, yeah. And what's that been like engaging with um, other black people in different European countries or in the US? Has there been an openness to the experience here? It was, um, I would definitely wish that experience for so many people in the Netherlands because when we speak about race, the activism and the resistance, it's on such a level and sometimes, so to like, take it a little bit deeper, right? So we're talking about anti-racism, but because we are so much involved in the anti-racism framework, we don't understand sometimes that we are also the oppressors and not always the oppressed. So think about intersectionality, etc. But also talking about what is anti, not necessarily anti-racism, but anti-black racism, mm -hmm. or other different realities within blackness. Uh, what is it, for instance, for people who identify as black who are not of African descent, like to have those conversations. So NPAD has become a place where only black organization can become uh, part of the network, mm -hmm. just to have like an, an space for our own agenda and our own way to liberate ourselves. So going outside of the Netherlands has been really, like, I can, I can, I can breathe. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Simone, has that been similar for you? Have you, um, you know, worked with organizations in other countries? Um, but few. I think predominantly in Brussels and recently, more recently in Antwerp. Uh, and since a few weeks, I've also joined a network that Jesse just talked about. Um, and it's it's healing. That's an overused word, but that is what it is. Uh, it's it's very it's very um, it's very healing to talk with other people who are in similar situations, uh, but in different contexts. So you can so you can learn from each other and just widen your horizon a little bit more. Um, so I did find it to be uh, I did find it to be very useful and very. Uh, I learned a lot from connecting with other people within the European context. Um, Simone, in your case. Um, who you're working with illegalized refugees and migrants do you have any links to like the countries that they come from like maybe working with them or yeah some of them yeah in some cases we did um in some cases we did but it's also a, l a little bit difficult because uh, there's uh, a bigger risk involved um, so as outspoken as we can be here it's difficult for somebody to super outspoken and very connected to other organizations because what would happen if you get deported um, and you face a government that isn't really keen on you being a political activist so sometimes the work focuses on uh, organizations of illegal refugees who are in who are based in europe rather than who are based in the countries uh, of origin um, so that that's a little bit different i think than working with people who have uh, who have documents and who don't fear deportations.
Inez and Amanda, you were talking about working with Emery Douglas, so having a connection to, I don't know, African-American activists. How did that feel? Oh, it was amazing to talk to someone who's been active for so long, to be able to ask some questions that you yourself are running up against. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Besides that, I don't know that we have... Well, we've had some uh, people come to uh, the University of Amsterdam as exchange students, for example, or mm-hmm. um, just to Amsterdam as exchange students, and then... Uh, join us african-american students as well so uh, mm-hmm. that's been cool and they have yeah great insight as well for sure mm-hmm. okay so that brings me to my final question of today which is what are your hopes for the future of the netherlands in terms of how it relates to race or how it relates to black feminism mm-hmm. well i hope that people will become less resistant to um black women speaking and uh, the speech of black women and the activism of black women yeah this is what i hope very much from society but also from allies and that you know just like you see in other countries or we think we see in in for instance britain and the us it's i think easier to speak about Um, the situation there than it is here so I think it will become easier and so we can push forward because it feels like you're making a little bit of progress and then something happens and it feels like you have to start all over again and it's like this um, continuously it feels like yeah so I hope that this will stop and that we can move forward continuously I don't know if you guys see it different but I hear you. (laughs) Yeah, I would hope for just the empowerment of black women in the Netherlands from all contexts for sure. And for specifically rearrangement of the neo-colonial relationship between the Netherlands and the so-called former Dutch Antilles. Because, yeah, you mentioned colonial history, but coloniality is very real today still in those relationships. So I think it would be great to see that changed sooner rather than later. Simone, what are your hopes for the future? It's a tough act to follow. They ticked everything (laughs) Um, (laughs) I was hoping for. Um, hmm, Let me add something I didn't hear then. What I was hoping for is for more solidarity within the different communities of black women. Yeah, that's that's what I'm hoping for, that we are more vocal when somebody gets attacked mm-hmm. or when something happens to one of us and that support doesn't always have to be online it can be offline but if you reach out to each other mm-hmm. a little bit more mm-hmm. that's what i would hope yeah yeah i think i can definitely you know find myself in all of them um definitely to be more among each other especially with you know this generational black black feminism also when i became in those circles i felt that it was often very much white Mm -hmm. Um, I might not have the same experience as everybody here mind you Um, so I really I really felt the need of being around black women and saying also like okay but this is the space for for instance black for white allies or other allies that's worst thing so definitely black women you know joining each other's a little bit more but for instance from NPAD where I want to produce my work is 
the intersectional side, I think maybe Simone was also adding to it. By the way, Simone is also now a new member of MPAT. <laughs> so applause to that. Yay. Yay. <laughs> um, besides we becoming, you know, um, um, bringing into organization, we also invited uh, individual activists as Simona, but also becoming intersectional and intergenerational. What I've learned is like, how do we give forward to the leadership? Yeah, so how can we create more leaders among each other? Yeah. Thank you very much, everyone, for being involved and for hearing all of your perspectives. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sakai, amazing person. <laughs> <laughs>